Today, Matthew chapter 5, we're going to look at a paragraph beginning at verse 13. A friend of mine emailed me a little quip I wanted to share with you. Did Jesus use a modem at the Sermon on the Mount? Did he ever try to use a fax to send his message out? Did the disciples carry beepers as they went about their route? Did Jesus use a modem at the Sermon on the Mount? Did Paul use a laptop with lots of RAM and ROM? Were his letters posted at a BBS at paul.rome.com? Did the man from Macedonia send an email saying, come? Did Paul use a laptop with lots of RAM and ROM? Now, I know that's not true, of course, but have you ever stopped to think how little they had and how much they accomplished? They had no publishing, no radio, no television, no live streaming of an Internet, and yet the influence and impact they had on their world. Think of it. Jesus took 12 blue-collar fishermen with no college education, no formal education, no seminary education, not one Ph.D. among them. Yet the impact that they made on their world was staggering. Now, I have a hunch that deep in your heart, you want to be able to say, I left my mark on my culture. My society is different because of the influence that I've exerted on it. The title of this message is How to Be Influential and Beneficial, because that's the theme of the paragraph. Beginning in verse 13 down to verse 16, how to make a mark or how to be influential and beneficial. You see, Jesus is going to speak about light and salt, two very powerful, influential entities. In fact, things that change their environment. Light is never changed by its environment. Light always changes the environment. If you put in light and darkness together, what does that do to the light? Nothing. What does it do to the darkness? Everything. And the same with salt. These are entities that are not changed by their environment, but they change their environment. It's sort of like the difference between a thermometer and a thermostat. Speaking of which, how many are cold right now? Raise your hands. You're cold? How many of you are just right right now? Raise your hand. Okay. Well, forget that then, shall we? (laughs) I thought everybody's going to say, we're freezing. But we get that a lot. We say, boy, it's too cold or it's too hot. But most of you say it's just right. Majority vote wins. So we'll go on to the next thing. But back to the thermostat. A thermostat changes the environment. A thermometer simply registers what's going on. And I believe that God wants us not to be thermometers going up and down according to the temperature and the trends of this world, but to be thermostats making the change and setting the pace. Now, if you're a Christian this morning, we're about to read some words that describe your role as kingdom representatives. Jesus has covered the Beatitudes. He has described who we are. Now he tells us what we do based on who we are in the world. If you're not a believer this morning, the words we're about to read will describe perhaps how you feel when you're around Christians, when they are salt and light. Let's look at these verses together, beginning in verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. 
You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. You'll notice that Jesus is using an analogy, metaphor. He does this a lot. He, in his teachings, was a very visual teacher, using parables, illustrations, so that people would see what he says, not just hear it. And he does that here. He, he goes from a direct set of pithy statements, blessed, 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 to now a description, an analogy of what Christians are. And uh, the analogies were simple. Salt and light. Things from the natural world. Things that simple people would say, oh, I get it. I understand what he's saying. Because they, they were used to it. By the way, a word about the audience that Jesus was speaking to. I mentioned they were simple. Most of them, at least in the disciples, were fishermen. Uh, the people that were outside the group of the disciples were simple peasants for the most part. They were uh, farmers, fishermen. They, they spent their whole life around a lake that was eight miles wide by 13 miles long. And I'm sure that when Jesus said these words, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world, I have a hunch that they were a little shocked because he is speaking of their influence in their world. And I say they were shocked because they were probably thinking things like, well, my life is rather insignificant when I compare it to the great influence of Rome. Rome has exerted its forceful influence upon all of this culture, and I'm just one little person, or we're just a small group of people in this huge Roman Empire. How could I ever make a difference? And so this morning I want to talk about that. If you have ever asked how you can be an influence to people around you and be beneficial These words of Jesus will answer that. Now, I first want to speak about the condition of the world in which we live. And uh, then I want to look at the commission that Jesus gives to his disciples, us. And then third, there is a caution that Jesus gives in verse 13. But first of all, the conditions. And let me say this. The conditions of being influential in this world are perfect. They're just right. Let me ask you a question. If you were to describe your world, what words would you choose? If you were to describe your state, your county, Orange County, your city in which you live, what words would you use to describe your world? You might say, well, it's pretty good. It's advanced. It's a nice place to live. We've made great accomplishments. We're a very enlightened culture. Well, that's true. But the fact that Jesus uses the metaphor salt and light implies something very negative about our world. The fact that Jesus uses those descriptions of believers in the world implies, first of all, using the metaphor of salt, that we live in a world that is decaying. I say that because, and people would have picked that up 2,000 years ago, the primary purpose of salt 2,000 years ago was a preservative. It was rubbed in meat as a preservative. They didn't have refrigerators. They didn't have freezers. They didn't have anything like we have to preserve meat or fish, so they rubbed salt into it. 
Have you ever smelled rotten meat? I used to work at a delicatessen as a kid, Hugo's Deli. There was a group of brothers from the East Coast. They moved out to the West Coast, and I had to clean up around the place. And they'd always say, hey, clean up that meat. It's going to smell around here. And it did. If you didn't clean it up, that meat would rot. The other day we cooked fish in our place, and uh, the fish smell lingered for, well, years. But it seems like every time you come in the house, it's there. But some of it we kept in a little baggie. I thought, don't worry, I'll, I'll eat that later. And I waited a little too later. So when I opened it up, it's like, oh, no way. I'm not going to stinks. I'm not going to eat that stuff. Now, I want you to keep that smell in mind as you hear the words, you are the salt of the earth. Because its primary purpose was to stop that. It was a preservative. Now, by using the term light, Jesus implies we live in a world of darkness. Because light primarily is used to dispel darkness. A while back, let me find it, I I bought this little flashlight at a law enforcement store in Anaheim about a year ago. And uh, it's a small light, but it puts out as much light as some of those big babies. It's halogen, see? Check it out. Sorry about that, but you'll get 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 the issue. It's a bright little light. And uh, it's great when it's dark. I wouldn't go outside in the sunlight and use this. It's valueless in the sunlight. It's already light. Light is used to dispel darkness. Jesus speaking this way, using this metaphor, salt and light, is implying that the world is dark, rotting, and decaying. Well, tell us how you really feel, Jesus. These are some pretty hefty ideas and implications. Now, he's not speaking of an intellectual darkness. He's not speaking of an educational darkness. But he is speaking of spiritual darkness. The world in which we live, Jesus would imply, is not getting better. It's getting worse. This is where humanism breaks down, folks. Humanism, the prevailing philosophy of our day and age, is blind optimism. Humanism has within it the idea of social and moral evolution. We're getting better every year, they tell us. We're getting better and better and better. We're making advancements. We're making strides in education. We're eradicating diseases. And so we're getting better. Jesus would indicate the world isn't getting better from his perspective. It's actually getting worse. At the beginning of the 1900s in our country... We thought utopia was right around the corner. Man, we were bringing in the golden age. We were making so many advancements that soon peace and prosperity would be worldwide. That was the prevailing attitude in the beginning of the 1900s. You know what happened to that way of thinking? World War I happened to it. World War II happened to it. Vietnam happened to it. The AIDS virus happened to it. Nuclear proliferation happened to it. 9-11 happened to it. And enough of that stuff happens. I stood at the World Trade Center. I worked there for two weeks as soon as the towers fell. And I'm in that rubble, and I'm thinking of the ideas of humanism. And I'm looking around at those buildings, gnarled and crumpled. And I said, yeah, we're getting a lot better, aren't we? This world is really advancing, isn't it? No, no, Jesus would say it's getting worse. In fact, Paul the Apostle wrote in 2 Timothy 3, evil men and imposters will grow worse and worse. Now, why am I bringing that up? For this reason. 
Those are perfect conditions to turn on the light. Those are perfect conditions to be salt. Because you see, light shines in the darkest places. Just like this flashlight does no good in the sunlight, but does a lot of good in the darkness, if the world is dark around us, conditions are perfect to be salt and light. Now that ought ought to be our attitude. Rather than looking around and saying, this world is in such a mess, you could say, what a great opportunity for me to do something about it, to give it the right stuff, to be salt and to be light. Wherever there's a mess, the message is listened to. You have a message. Go into the mess. Be a messenger with a message. And they're going to listen to you because it's getting darker and darker if you do it right. So the conditions are right. Now look at the commission that Jesus gives. The commission is clear. You are the salt of the earth. Verse 14, you are the light of the world. Verse 16, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Now, folks, this is one of those statements that ought to cause you to stand up straighter as a believer, lift up your head, and think what a remarkable thing it is to be a Christian. You know why? Because the words Jesus uses is the emphatic plural in the Greek. A better translation would be this. You and you alone are the salt of the earth. You and only you are the light of the world. He would say, yes, the world is dark. Yes, the world is rotting. Yes, the world is corrupt. But have I got a plan for you? You are going to be my instruments of change to go out into it. In other words, you are the only hope this world has. How does that make you feel? You are the only hope this world has by what you say and what you do. You can say, well, it's a kind of a heavy trip to lay on me. I don't know if I can really do much about it. Listen, it ought to make you feel valuable. Ever heard the expression, he's not worth his salt? You know where that comes from? 2,000 years ago, Roman soldiers were paid in bundles of salt because it was as valued as currency. Jesus is saying, you are so valuable. You are so different, and I've got a plan that includes you. You and you alone are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. It would help to understand Jesus' commission to us if we understood the properties of salt and light. Let me go through them quickly. Number one, salt preserves, as I already mentioned. You would take meat, you'd rub it down with salt, and it would keep it pure. So salt preserves. You ought to be, and I ought to be, a moral, spiritual disinfectant in the world in which we live. By our very presence, words, and activity, we ought to retard the moral, spiritual corruption of our culture. There's a lot of examples that could be uh, used for that. Slavery was a problem in England as well as in America years ago. Two Christian men stepped forward in England... One was William Wilberforce. The other was Lord Ashley Shaftesbury, who decided this is wrong. And they made a stand, and by their words, by their persuasiveness, by their lives, they eradicated slavery from Britain. They enacted fair labor laws. 
and they brought the country to a whole new level. So salt preserves. Question, when was the last time your presence stopped corruption? Good question. When was the last time your presence stopped corruption? Easy test. Do people find it hard or easy to tell a dirty joke around you? To use certain kinds of languages. If you came in the room and they'd say, Oh, he's here. Oh, don't say anything. She just came in. That's a good thing. Salt preserves. Number two, salt adds flavor. Some foods are pretty lifeless, tasteless, flat, and insipid. Unless you add spices, salt. In New Mexico, we had uh, green chili, and uh, people can't eat food without green chili. It's just like salt is everywhere else. It adds spice. It adds flavor. And life for so many people is flat, insipid, tasteless. They're burned out. They're involved in pleasure mania, anything to fill the void. And that's where you come in. You see, it could be that by your life, your joy, your peace, your confidence in the future, they see that. And they see that flavor that you live with. And they want what you have. Oliver Wendell Holmes once wrote something that I found very discouraging. He said, I would have entered the ministry, except so many preachers that I know acted and looked so much like undertakers, I decided not to. How sad. It ought to be the very opposite. We ought to be people that live with flavor and cause others to want it. So salt preserves, salt adds flavor. Number three, salt disinfects. It was used and is still used in some parts of the world to kill bacteria, to kill disease. When babies were born, salt was rubbed on the skin. It firmed up the skin. It tightened the skin. It killed surface bacteria. It eradicated disease on the infant. In fact, there's even a scriptural reference to that in the Old Testament where God speaks metaphorically of his people, Jerusalem, and how he brought them forth. And listen to what he says in Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 4. On the day you were born, your cord was not cut. You were not washed with water to clean you. You were not rubbed with salt or wrapped in cloths. So salt disinfects, but a problem here. Have you ever seen salt, or felt salt, I should say, in an open wound? It stings. Oh, it cleanses, but it stings when you put it in there. And you know that when you live the right kind of a way, when you live a salty kind of a life, it's going to sting a little bit sometimes with people around you. Your presence, your lifestyle, your godliness, your righteousness, your words is sometimes like pouring salt in an open wound. You are going to prick the conscience of those people who are uncomfortable with the gospel. So we need to strike a balance. We need to be very gracious, very loving, but very pointed and very honest. In Colossians chapter 4, here's the balance. Verse 6, the apostle says, Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt that you may know how you ought to answer each one. So speak gently, graciously, but pointedly and matter-of-factly. That's the balance. 
Number four, salt creates a thirst. When salt does its job, it makes people thirsty. Because the body requires fluid so it doesn't dehydrate and die. And even workers out in the hot sun will sometimes take salt tablets and it'll increase their desire for more water. That's done just to prevent dehydration. The other day I was in a restaurant with a buddy of mine and uh, he ordered a Diet Coke. And as soon as it came to the table, we were waiting for our food. He had to get up and use the restroom. So now his Diet Coke was left alone with me. So I decided I'm just going to have a little fun. And while he was gone, I took the salt shaker and I poured it into his Diet Coke. And after the fizz settled down a little bit, I stirred it up and just kind of waited, folded my arms, waited for him to get back to the table. And he sat down and nonchalantly grabbed his Coke, took a big gulp of it and went, this is horrible. And I confessed I had sinned. And I told the waiter I had done to give him another Diet Coke. But instead of refreshing him, it caused him to be thirstier. Salt does that. Salt will create a thirst. Now listen, the world is in danger of spiritual dehydration. They are so thirsty. At the same time, they are so smug and self-confident and feel like they don't need religion, they don't need God. But you put the right kind of life in front of them and it makes them thirsty. Again, they look at you and they go, Ooh, I want that. You are creating within me a thirst. Folks, you're being watched by the world. They look at you. As soon as you say, you know, I'm a born-again Christian, they're not going to go, great, we love born-again Christians. They're going to go, oh, really? I've always wanted to see how a born-again Christian works and how a born-again Christian lives and what born-again Christians think. And you're going to be watched, aren't you? They're going to look at you very, very carefully. I'll never forget years ago, I was living in San Bernardino going to school, and I was working in radiology. It was a radiology internship. And uh, I had a little apartment, and a guy lived across the street in another apartment. We'd both worked in the same unit of the hospital. One afternoon, he came over and he knocked on my door, and he asked me the weirdest question. He said, let me ask you a strange question. I noticed you in the hospitals. And I noticed that you, you glow. I said, what? Yeah, that's right. You, you, you like glow. And I'd like to know why. I said, I have no idea what you're talking about. So I looked in the mirror and thought maybe I had radiation poisoning or something, you know. <laughs> and I realized, you know, he's watching a lifestyle as I was hanging out with some of the other believers in the fellowship we were enjoying in the hospital. But he noticed there was a difference. You glow. I've been watching you, he said. You are writing a gospel, a chapter each day, by the things that you do and the words that you say. People hear what you say and people see what you do. So what is the gospel according to you? People are watching. What are you telling them? Well, that's salt. Powerful substance, sometimes hidden. But now think about light. Light is a little more obvious. Light dispels darkness, as we mentioned. In the Bible, if you were to do a little word search of darkness, you'd find out that darkness is, a, again, a metaphor, a symbol of sin, wickedness, spiritual ignorance, whereas light is a picture of spiritual truth. 
Peter said in the New Testament, God has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. There's the picture. Spiritual wickedness, sin, ignorance, spiritual light, enlightenment, truth. God called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's your salvation. Friday night I was up in Bakersfield. I know what you're thinking. Why? (laughs) Well, Franklin Graham was holding a crusade Friday night, Saturday night, and last one tonight. So I was up there for the opening night, drove up and back. And I saw it again. I've seen it so many times. I saw it again. I was on the platform and I watched as thousands of people came out of the stands and walked out on that field after Franklin, like his father, said, And you can come. And they got up and they started coming down and they had tears in their eyes. Some did, some didn't. But I watched them. They're coming out of darkness. They're entering spiritual light. They're starting to feel that. They can see that. It was a marvelous experience. However, look at verse 14 and 15. Light, to be effective, has to be seen. You've got to notice it. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. You put a city on a hill, it's set out in the open. People can see it from miles around. I believe Jesus was speaking about a particular city over in Israel. There's one and only one around the Sea of Galilee that is visible. That's called Sephat. It's because it's set up on a hill. The rest of those towns are pretty invisible because of the hills. And same with the lampstand. If you're in a room at night, in the old days, you'd light a candle and you'd set it up in a high place and it would flood the room with light. What value is it to cover it? Light has to be seen. Here's my point. There's no such thing as being a secret agent Christian. There's no such thing as secret discipleship. Yeah, I'm a Christian, but nobody will know. Why? If you're a disciple, it's going to cancel out the secrecy. If you're secret, it's going to cancel out the discipleship. You set that light high so that it can be noticed, so that it can be seen. Again, a word of caution Light sometimes makes people squint. And when you live the right kind of a way and you say the right kind of things and you love people truly with the gospel message, you're going to make people squint around you a little bit. They're going to be a little bit uncomfortable. Just so you know that going in. But the great thing is that light shows people out of darkness. Keep that in mind. As people are squinting, keep in mind the goal. You are there to lead them out of darkness. Jesus said that they may see your good works, notice, and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Yeah, you let them see your good works because eventually they may just end up glorifying your Father who is in heaven. My wife, Lenya, grew up on Lake Michigan, about two blocks away from a lighthouse. You know what the lighthouse is there for? Just to shine. But in shining perpetually, it forms a guidance navigational system at night. Oh, that's the shore. I best not go very far. It helps people in the darkness navigate to safety. Nine-year-old boy visited a cathedral, and he was shown the great stained glass of that beautiful building. 
And he noticed people inside the pictures on the stained glass. He said, well, what are those people inside the glass? And the curator said, those are the saints of old. Well, the next Sunday, he was at Sunday school, and guess what question the teacher asked him? Does anybody here know what a saint is? Well, he shot his arm up. He said, I know, I know. A a saint is a person that light shines through. He was thinking of that window. Isn't that a great description of a Christian? A saint is a person that the light shines through. You help people see out of darkness. Now I want you to look at, this is the closing point, verse 13, and that is a word of caution is given by Jesus. We can't miss that. The conditions are right. The commission is clear, but the caution is plain. You are the salt of the earth, but, ooh, here's the word of caution, but if salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. Much of the salt over in Israel was found at the shores of the Dead Sea. Sometimes the salt was contaminated with things like gypsum and other materials that rendered it flat and really unusable. And whenever a shipment of salt was taken that was contaminated, a lot of times they didn't know about it, it found its way into homes they would be tasted and found to be flat or losing its saltiness. They would then take it and discard it. They wouldn't throw it out in the gardens or out in the fields because it would kill things. So they would throw it out on the pathway, the road, so that eventually the feet that would grind the salt would grind it into the dust and the salt would become indistinguishable with the dust of the path. That's the idea here. It's not that salt ever really loses its saltiness. It's that it becomes so contaminated with outside elements that it's rendered useless. Folks, Jesus isn't speaking here about losing your salvation. He's speaking about losing your effectiveness in the world. You've got a a goal, a role to play in this world. It's to be salt and light. If you lose that edge, according to Jesus, you and I become good for nothing. We lose our effective posture in this world in making a difference. In other words, we can become so influenced by the world that we lack the ability to influence the world. That's the contamination that he's speaking about. You know what the devil's plan is? You've heard the old saying, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Did you also know Satan hates you and has a miserable plan for your life? And you know what that is? He wants to make you indistinguishable from unbelievers. Christian, unbeliever. What does a Christian do? He goes to church. He sings songs. He does things. Here's an unbeliever. What does he do? Well, he doesn't quite do what the Christian does, but sometimes he'll go to church and he'll do some nice things too. But by and large, there's really no difference. Here's my question to you. Have you lost the saltiness? Have you lost the edge Are you becoming a little more ashamed of the gospel light because, well, you want to be cool and fit in? We have to be careful. Does fitting in rank higher to you than standing out? That's the question. Does fitting in with your peer group rank higher to you than standing out? You know what Paul said. 
He said, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Phillips puts it even better than that. Don't let the world squeeze you into its own mold, but be transformed. I want to sum up this paragraph with these thoughts. Number one, you're different. You're different. You're not darkness, you're light. You're not the rotting world, you are salt. You are different. Don't be afraid to be salt. It's a lot better than being decayed meat. Number two, you are noticed. People are watching you. They're scoping you out. They're checking you out. Don't get embarrassed about that. See it as a golden opportunity. Number three, you're responsible now. You know this now. If you didn't know it before, you know it after today. You and I are responsible. Lift the lamp high so that people can see it. So you're different. You're noticed. You're responsible. All that adds up to this. You are valuable. You are a tool, men and women, in the hands of God. Without you, without the message of the cross that you and I bear, the world has no hope, none at all. Losing saltiness and covering up light is something that can happen to an individual. It can also happen to a lot of individuals, like a church. It can also happen to an organization, Christian organization. It can happen to a denomination, a whole group of churches. What happens to one person can also happen to groups of them. We can lose our saltiness. We can lose our edge. We can start in revival and end up deader than a doornail. It happens throughout history all the time, doesn't it? I want to close with this little parable. On a dangerous sea coast where shipwrecks often occurred, there was once a crude little life-saving station. The building was just a hut. There was only one boat, but the few devoted members kept constant watch over the sea, and with no thought for themselves, they went out day and night tirelessly searching for the lost. Some of those who were saved and various others in the surrounding area wanted to become associated with the station and give of their time and money and effort for the support of its work. New boats were bought, new crews were trained, and the life-saving station grew. Some of the members of the life-saving station were unhappy that the building was so crude and poorly equipped. They felt that a more comfortable place should be provided as the first refuge of those saved from the sea. They replaced the emergency cots with beds and put better furniture in the enlarged building. Now the life-saving station became a popular gathering for its members. They decorated it beautifully. They furnished it exquisitely because they used it as sort of a club. Fewer members were now interested in going out to sea on life-saving missions, so they hired lifeboat crews to do the work. The life-saving motif still prevailed in this club's decoration. And there was a liturgical lifeboat in the room where the club initiations were held. About this time, a large ship was wrecked off the coast, and the hired crews brought in boat loads of cold, wet, and half-drowned people. They were dirty and sick, and some of them had black skin, some had yellow skin. And the beautiful new club was in chaos. So the property committee immediately had a shower house built outside the club where victims of shipwreck could be cleaned up before coming inside. At the next meeting, there was a split in the club membership. Most of the members wanted to stop the club's life-saving activities as being unpleasant and a hindrance to the normal social life of the club. 
some members insisted upon life-saving as their primary purpose, and they pointed out that they were still called a life-saving station. But they were finally voted down and told if they wanted to save lives of all various kinds of people who were shipwrecked in those waters, that they could begin their own life-saving station down the coast. And they did. As the years went by, the new station experienced the same changes that occurred in the old. It evolved into a club, and yet another life-saving station was founded. History continued to repeat itself. And if you visit that seacoast today, you will find a number of exclusive clubs along that shore. Shipwrecks are frequent in those waters, but most of the people drown. It's not what we're called to, is it? Isn't this word to us the same as it was to them 2,000 years ago? Aren't we still called to be salt? Aren't we still called to be light? Isn't that what it's all about? It is. Some of you this morning may be here, and you're here. We're glad you're here. But we don't want you to come and just join a club. We want to get your life flavored, satisfied with the the taste and the fragrance of Christ and his life so that you become so valuable and important in reaching others for Christ. You know, 2,000 years ago, in fact, we celebrate it on this day, Palm Sunday. Jesus came into Jerusalem on a donkey. And as he came in and publicly advanced himself as their Mashiach, their Messiah, what did the crowd say? Hosanna! Hosanna in the highest! What did that same crowd say three days later? Crucify him! And they shouted louder, crucify him! Jesus put it this way, light came into the world, but men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. Neither would they come to the light, lest their deeds be reproved. God's calling some of you not to church. He's calling you to himself, calling you to the light. And I'm asking you, if you don't know Christ personally today, to make that commitment to know him and to have flavor, purpose, meaning in your life. Heavenly Father, we close the way we ought to close in talking to you because you are the ultimate examiner of every life here. We stand completely naked and open before you. You know our thoughts. You know our motives. So examine us, Lord. Try us. Test us. Father, I pray for every man and woman in this room who is a believer this morning that we would be unashamed to be salt and light. We would return to our first love and make it all about Jesus and bringing people to know him and then discipling those who are his to go out and fish for others. Father, we want to pray for someone who might be here today, maybe a few. They don't know Christ yet. They know of him, they've heard of him, they've seen the movie, they've read the book. But they haven't accepted the Lord in their heart. 
This is a very important time, Lord, as you examine those hearts. We pray that in examining them, there would be a release, a surrender. That some would answer in the affirmative, yes, I want to know Christ and give my life to him. As we're praying right now with our heads bowed, you're in this room this morning, as we saw some in the last service do, are you willing to come to Christ, surrender your life, turn from your past, turn from your sins, and turn to him? Are you willing to let Jesus reveal himself to you and change you? If you're willing, as we're praying, I want you to raise your hand up. Raise it up, in the, raise it up in the air so I can see it. And in raising it up, you're saying, Skip, here I am. Pray for me. Pray for me. I need to do this. I'm going to give my life to Christ. You raise your hand up if you want to know Christ this morning. Oh, right there. Thank you, Dave. Right there in there. Both of you. God bless you guys. Anybody else? Just raise it up. Heavenly Father, what a privilege to see new life being birthed. And we pray that these lives would be changed and that our lives, the rest of us, would be changed and love the lost enough to tell them the truth and to bring them here next time. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Amen.